Good morning, everybody. I want to encourage you, if you are a member, to make sure you come back. The worst thing that happens to us sometimes is we all get back here and like we're a few people short and we can't do anything. So uh, anybody that doesn't come back, we're going to hand out your home phone number and address to all those that didn't get to, didn't get to go to the beach later on today. Some of you all know my, uh, my story. I didn't grow up as a church kid. My family, like many families, was a family of faith. I was taught about God and about Jesus early in my life, but we just didn't go to church often. We did go regularly. In fact, we were religious about it. We went to church on Christmas and Easter, and that was about it. That was mostly when we went. And so when I came to faith, I was 18 years old, um, and I started going to church. And it didn't take a long time to figure out and some of you know what I'm talking about here. Church people are weird. Has anybody else had that discovery at some point during your life? Um, I don't know if maybe you've been in the church for a long time and you don't realize it, but we're strange people. Um, I, I came to faith in the 80s. Maybe you're too young to remember this. But there was a time when Christians had their own bookstores. Do you remember that? There was no Amazon, and, uh, you know, so if you wanted a book and you were a Christian, like, you didn't go where the pagans went to Walden Books. You, you for me, I had to drive uh, to Route 46 in Mountain Lakes, where that's where, because I was a Christian, that's where I bought my books, right? And we had our own music, Twyla Paris, Sandy Patty, Amy Grant, until she got divorced and then she was out. And uh, <laughs> Keith Green, right? Remember Keith Green? And it went on and on. We had, we had our own schools. We even had kind of our own dress codes. <clears throat> Joan and I, I actually should have, I should have taken this picture and put it up there, except my wife would have killed me. But uh, in the 80s, every time my brother-in-law sees this one picture from us, he says, oh, that's the picture of you guys right when you came off the compound. Because we had this very, like, strange religious-looking, I don't know, it was just weird. I mean... You can go on, right? Like, we like cheesy movies. Our kids learn Bible lessons from a group of talking vegetables. <laughs> I, I had a, it's so funny because my, my son-in-law has, has married into the family, right? And, he, and he's new to the faith, and, like, he doesn't have any of this stuff. And he's always like, what, what is this stuff? And I'm like, it's a very good question. What is it? I had a friend. It's a very true story. I had a friend who was actually um, a member of Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority. How do I know? Because he showed me his card. He actually had a card. And I thought to myself, do you really, I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't your life show this, not a card, you know, that, that you were of some moral character? There's a line in a Springsteen song that says, we like the same music, we like the same band, we like the same clothes. And it was all true of, of Christians. Now, here's the thing. Church people actually are supposed to be weird, they're supposed to be different, but just not for any of those reasons. Welcome back to this series we've been working our way through, and then what happened, following up on the second act, in a sense, of Jesus after his ascension, his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Now, the premise for me has been that for many of us, especially if you grew up outside of the church, what we understand about Jesus is well, what most people understand, that he was born on Christmas, he died on Good Friday, he was raised on Easter Sunday, and that if you obey the Ten Commandments and you do more good things than, than bad things, you'll go to heaven. And 
I don't know. I, I, I think what we're trying to do is, first of all, that's not even right. Um, and, and week by week, what I've been trying to do is, is kind of untangle this very mixed, half right, half wrong, shallow understanding of Jesus' story and understanding that if we, we claim to be followers of Jesus, how big and wild and historically valid our faith and our story really is, it's so much bigger and better than that. Now, to move forward in the story, we've been tracing what Luke, this first-century Greek physician turned first-rate historian, chronicled about Jesus after he rose from the dead. His first book, most people, you could go to the Morristown and ask people on the green. They've heard of the book of Luke. But his second book, Luke wrote a second book. It's the fifth one in the New Testament. It's called Acts, short for the Acts of the Apostles. Now, if you were here last week, you know we talked about this mysterious power that Jesus had told the disciples would, that God would send after he left them and ascended into heaven. Really more of a person with this power. You and I know him as the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps if you're from a different faith background, you've heard him referred to as the Holy Ghost, which was always kind of spooky to me as a kid. And we concluded last week with Peter... The one, remember, this is the same Peter who, who was scared to death um, when Jesus was arrested, who betrayed him once and then twice and then a third time, right? This is the same Peter that, um, after Jesus uh, was crucified, hid uh, in a room. In fact, this is the same Peter who, after Jesus was arrested, was still hiding with the rest of the disciples off in a room. Suddenly, in the, just the second book of this, or second um, chapter of this book that Luke is writing, all of a sudden, you see this same Peter, now full of this outside power and influence. He's so giddy, he's so joyful, he's so, what seemed to be the people of the day, full of, full of like beer muscles. All of a sudden, this guy who was timid and scared, like all of a sudden, he was like a tough guy. Something really changed in him. He was out in the middle of the streets testifying to the same people he was afraid of a couple of days before that Jesus is alive and that he's God. And, and, and this is so crazy. The people start looking at him and all his friends going, ah, they're drunk. And, and if you were here last week, you know that Peter's response was funny. He goes, we're not drunk. And his defense was, it's only nine in the morning. And he goes on to preach. You can look this up. It's in Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon ever preached. And and because of of the power of the Holy Spirit that's enabling the believers, they're suddenly able to speak all of these different languages from the people that the pilgrims in Jerusalem that were there for Pentecost, they hear this message suddenly in their own language. We concluded last week noticing how this gift of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the unraveling of all of the curses that had beset humanity from the start. Hopefully you might remember, and if you didn't, you should go back and check this out. It's so fascinating. We went back to this very ancient story in the history of the people of God. Some of you have heard it called the Tower of Babel. And just like the story in Acts, this story in Genesis begins with a list of all of the nations. And how these nations, just like in Jerusalem that day, there were all these nations, these pilgrims there for Pentecost. Back in Genesis, it speaks of all of these nations being laid out. But the difference was all of these nations had one language and they all understood one another. 
And having that one language, that allowed them, when they came together out of pride and arrogance and a desire to be self-sufficient, they began to build this tower up to the heavens because they wanted to declare for themselves that they didn't need God. They were, in fact, their own gods. And so God put an end to this, and he did it by confusing their languages. Suddenly, instead of one language, there were many languages, and all of the people no longer understood one another. That resulted in, over time, many races, many languages, and a lot of people no longer really understanding one another. And you know what flows from that? You mix it up with some human pride, and what do you get? Racial and cultural superiority, imperialism, racial culture, hostility, and destruction of, uh, of, um, of human community. Just turn on the news. On Pentecost, though, this curse begins to be reversed. All of the nationalism and racial tensions, all the cultural clashes, they begin to become undone. Suddenly in Acts 2, they had many languages, but now they could all understand one another again. Well, Peter's preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit is so profound that when he gets done with this first sermon, and all of these people are, are hearing these things coming through in their own languages, Luke writes that when, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles who were speaking this to them in their own languages, brothers, what shall we do? And it's a question that I would argue is the same one that you and I should ask based on what Luke has reported so far in his gospel and in this second book. I mean, Peter has told them about Jesus, the Jesus that they knew, the Jesus that they had been in town for a few weeks earlier and had chanted that they wanted him crucified and not this criminal. They, they knew because Peter had testified to him that Jesus had suffered to bear the burden of their sin and that he had been raised from the dead, that they all had seen him now. And they could testify to the fact that he was alive and that he was their Lord and long awaited for Messiah. Now, what I would say to you, actually, I don't need to say it to you. This is what, what Peter said. Um, you should ask that same question, too, because he gives them an answer that I think is still sufficient for you and I today. Peter replied, here's what you should do. If you believe all that, here's what you should do. You should repent. Religious word for means change your mind. Change what you believe. Believe it. Change your mind about Jesus. Okay? He is who he said he is. He was killed and he is alive. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. You're going to hear me invite you to this over and over in the coming weeks. This is a vital part of our story. If you believe what Luke has recorded, then you should be baptized. This is not me telling you, this is Peter telling you. You should publicly identify with Jesus' death by going down into the water and his resurrection and his new life by coming up out of the water. And you should do that publicly. You're going to hear me continue to tell you that. If you have not been baptized as a believer, as an adult, I would encourage you to follow Peter, follow Peter's instructions in this. You can sign up, go to mhcc.life and sign up to do that. And here's the promise. And he says... You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He tells them that the power that you see displayed in our lives right now, it's not just for us. 
It's for you. Everything that is ours is yours. Just believe. And believe they did, Luke writes. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. So Jesus, let's go through the timeline here, okay? It's super interesting. Jesus died and is buried. How many people believed when Jesus was died and buried that Jesus was going to come back to life? How many people? None. How many Christians are there on Good Friday? None. Jesus comes back to life. He's resurrected. And a few of the disciples see him, but most doubted. So like Easter Sunday night, how many Christians are there? A couple. And so Jesus, Luke had told us earlier in this second book, says that Jesus walks and talks and lives in Jerusalem with them for about a month and a half. And he gives, if you remember, he gives to all of those people what what Luke describes um, as many convincing proofs that he's alive. And hundreds of people begin to believe. And then suddenly, Peter gives this testimony They hear it in their own languages. It's fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is living in them. And thousands are added to your number. And do you know what they became that day? Church people. That was the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. The gathering of his followers. And I have to tell you, they were weird. You're going to see this in a minute. They became, I'm telling you, they just became weird but they became weird in all the right ways. Because this new community is going to be this place where all of these curses, and you're going to see this over the coming weeks, all of the curses that have come upon man because of our own sin and disobedience, this community, that Jesus that would become known as his church, this community is the place where all of those curses that beset mankind become unwound. This community and the unwinding of this curse, it has nothing to do with singing vegetables or bookstores or voting blocks. You don't see any of that. Here's what Luke says right after 3,000 came uh, came to faith. They became church people, right? And, And how do I know? Because here's what the scriptures say. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves. We read right by that and miss the power of that word. I started thinking about it this week. I went back and I looked it up in the Greek. That's the language that Luke was writing this in. And that word carries so much more intensity than comes through. It means, when it originally wrote it, to continue steadfastly in doing something with intense effort with the possible implication of, of, of uh, it says here, of despite difficulty. In other words, you keep doing it even though it's not easy. You'll see this in a second. He writes that actually every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts every day. Now notice, he doesn't say that they continued to meet in the temple courts when they felt like it. It doesn't say they continued to meet in the temple courts when their kids didn't have a sports game or when the weather wasn't so bad that they'd have to scrape off the car or not so good that they might miss a beach day. Now, remember, this is a true story, okay? 
These are real human beings with real lives. Do you think that every day, everybody in the church felt like getting up and meeting in the temple courts every day? <laughs> A couple of you said that with way too much conviction. Right? I mean, don't you think they could have come up with a reason for not meeting today? But here's the key, okay? The power in the movement is tied to their devotion. Now, you know this is true elsewhere in your lives. Imagine if when I left for work in the morning and Joan said to me, what time are you going to be home for dinner, right? And that was one of the things the early church did. They ate together often, daily. Imagine if I said to her, well... I'll be there if I feel like it. You know, if, if nobody at work is doing anything after work that's not better than this option, well, then I'll come, right? I mean, I'll have to see how the day goes. I, I, I might not be in the mood for, you know, coming home and the kids and the mess and the screaming and the yelling and the dishes. I don't know. I don't know. I'll text you later, and I'll let you know if I'm going to make it. That would not go well for me. See, the power of family, and of course you see this in, in the other direction too, where the power in family isn't, but the power of family is in devotion. I am fully devoted to it, fully. Nothing gets in the way, nothing. See, and it's not just family. We're devoted to all kinds of things, right? I mean, some of you are devoted enough to, to, to watch seasons of shows in a weekend, right? Like... That takes a lot of devotion. I'm devoted to horrible sports teams. That takes a lot of devotion. There's a lot of pain inflicted on me. I mean, most of us are, uh, are devoted to our, I mean, imagine telling your boss at work, you know, thanks for the job, and I'll be there on Monday. Uh, I mean, if I feel like it. It, it doesn't work that way. You, you won't retain the job. There'll be no power in a paycheck. This is a hard truth for Jesus' church. But it was always hard. I mean, if I devote myself to the fellowship, I'm just telling you, this is the truth, okay? Maybe a lot of people won't tell you this. If I devote myself to the fellowship of believers, it will come with a cost. I will lose the freedom to do whatever it is I want to do with my time. They decided to devote themselves to this. They thought it was so powerful that they devoted themselves to it. But I have to tell you, there's a cost the other way. If you don't devote yourself to the fellowship, if you don't do it with intense effort, with the possible implication of difficulty, then you will miss out on the power that comes from that devotion. That's the truth. This is not about coming to church to impress God. You're not impressing him. This is about something completely different than that. It's, actually, it's way more important than that. They devoted themselves to this community. Real people once did this. In fact, people have done this across the centuries, across cultures, for the history, well, for the history of the last couple thousand years. And it's not because the pastor guilted them into it. Guilt is a really good short-term motivator. It's a horrible long-term change agent. They didn't do it because some pastor guilted them into it. They didn't do it because God told them, well, if you don't go, you know, then you're in trouble with me. They did it because they knew the power of it, that it was changing them, and they began to see that it was changing the world. If you want to know why the church has lost so much power, look no further than our lack of devotion to it. 
It's not a guilt thing at all. It's just a, a true thing. I, I've been fortunate enough that my children, who are all now in their 20s, are all following Jesus. And a lot of people, you know, that's, that's rare. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, like, how'd that happen? There's a, there's a few answers to that. But I'll tell you the first one, go to church. Like, every week, prioritize the community. It's not about the church service or anything like that. It's about the community. Get your kids into that community. Joan and I have been doing marriage counseling with this couple um, by, uh, by uh, Zoom over the last few months. And same thing, I said to them, we talked about, you know, how do you, how do you continue in your spiritual journey over time? I said, you just got to make a, a rock. You know, we were, again, we were doing some, some Christian material. And anytime you get Christian material, unfortunately, there's a lot of cheese that comes with it for free. And in the book, it was like, make this commitment to spend 15 minutes a day for the rest of your life. And I'm like, oh, for heaven's sake, like that. I know you're not going to do that. I'm not going to ask you to do that. If you want to make a commitment to do it for the next six months, that'd be great, but I'm not going to set you up for failure and make you feel guilty that God somehow isn't love you anymore. But here's what I will ask you to make a commitment to do. Make a commitment that no matter what, you go to church. And I'm telling you, it will keep your relationship on target. It might not always be perfect, but you will have a centering, and your kids will be part of a community that believes like you do. You go to church. Because I, want I wanted them to understand the power of it, the life-changing power of the community. What did they devote themselves to? Well, the, the first was the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching about? Well, everything that Jesus had said and done. You need to remember, this is so important, all of these things that were happening in the, in the story, there was no Bible. They weren't studying the Bible. There were no Bible studies. There were no books. There was very little written word. Nobody had written anything down yet. So what did they have? They literally had the apostles sitting around retelling Jesus' teaching. I mean, can you imagine just sitting there, right, and Matthew's going, let me tell you what I remember about Jesus, what he said when he was on this mountain one day. He gave this longer speech. I never heard him give a longer one. You know it as the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew is just like, I'm going to tell you this one time. And he started going through the Beatitudes. And then it, they said, you know, he told a story one time about a father that had a son or, or about a Samaritan, right, that, that, that met this guy on the road. I mean, just imagine hearing the firsthand observations from these guys who were there. And, and I guess they would always end their stories with, with something like this. And by the way, I, I know this is crazy, but we saw him killed, and I'm telling you, now he's alive. And then Luke says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. I heard a story this week about a stage of childhood development. It's called parallel play. I don't know if anybody out there has heard of this. But you could go upstairs and watch it. You could observe, observe it right now. The capacity for a parallel play begins with a child when it's about two to three years old. If you put them in a room at that age, you can sit them right next to each other, but they won't play together. They'll play individually, even though they're in the same place, but they'll play by themselves. It is an early, inevitable step in childhood development. It's characterized by egocentric behavior and an inability to put somebody other than yourself first. In parallel play, right? If you've had little kids, you know this. You don't share your toys, right? In parallel play, you just do whatever it is you want. 
Now, here's what we know. Psychologists say that this stage lasts, the length of this stage of parallel play, its length depends on the culture and geography of the people. In Midwestern towns here in the U.S., where there's a high emphasis on community, they say parallel play will disappear from most children by the age of five and six. In more competitive and individualistic areas, it can go on longer. Here in Mendham, it actually lasts, they've studied this, till retirement. <laughs> and what, what makes this idea of, which is what, excuse me, makes this idea of fellowship so difficult for us. And fellowship is just such a church word. I, I, this morning, Joe and I were having coffee together. We were sitting on the couch, and uh, there was a, a, a famous pastor that was on TV. And uh, as soon as he got done, a commercial came on for going on a cruise with the pastor and his wife. And, uh, and you know, well, here goes the cheesy things again, right? Like, and trying to sell me something again. And so, and this is a good guy. But it was like, oh, enjoy you know, enjoy Bible studies every morning and, and evening and wonderful music. And Joan just looked at me and we both kind of laughed. Like, I, I, do, I really wouldn't want to do that. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Um, and Joan's like, well, would, you know, kind of joking, like, wouldn't you enjoy the fellowship? And I said, that's actually what I'm talking about today. And that's not fellowship, <laughs> right? That's just not it. That's a cheap imitation of it. It's not bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just telling you that's not fellowship, right? I mean, when I think back to the 80s when somebody said we were going to get together and enjoy some fellowship, it usually communicated to me we were going to have potluck dinners, which I am not a fan of, <laughs> and, and relatively boring parties. But it wasn't always that way. See, when the church began... It was weird, too, but it was weird in all the right ways. And, and because it was so strange, and what they were experiencing in this new community together, all 3,500 of them or so, they didn't know what to describe it as. They'd never seen anything like this. And so they, they, they found a Greek word. It was a rarely used Greek word. And they decided that that's what they were going to call what they were experiencing together, this radical nature of love and of sharing and generosity. And so they started calling it koinonia, which is what fellowship means. That's the translated, that's the Greek word for it. It does not mean potlucks and bad parties. You know what it actually means? It means holding something in common. Huge, huge key to understanding what was happening in the early church and why it exploded and why the current church is often so kind of neutered. This is why Luke says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and they gave it to anybody who had need. They had everything in common. Now, what does Luke mean by that? That they listened to the same music, they went to the same college, they voted for the same candidates? Is that what he means? No. Now, again, politicians and corporations would like you to think that that's what it means so that you'll vote for them or buy their stuff. Here's what it means. What it means is that they opened their hearts and their hands to one another. Koinonia, fellowship, was so unique in that community was they opened their hearts and their hands to one another. It's so interesting, really. Think about when, you know, I know, you, you know, people church visit and all the rest. And when we go to look at a church, what do we look at? Well, let's, I like the worship, the, the preaching, the kids ministry, the youth group. 
But that wasn't what the, the early church was known for. You wouldn't go to look for those things. It was really about, do these people open their hearts and their, and their hands? That's what you would look for. Luke writes, and you'll see in a moment, he says that they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Sincere hearts. You see it several times, eating together, which of course is important, right? I mean, you guys know that things change when you, when you have a meal together. But eating together, especially bad potlucks, is not what makes fellowship. Luke said they did it with sincere hearts. Fellowship, koinonia, requires authenticity. Now, some of you guys know, again, here, this is the reversing of the curse, all right? Some of you guys know the story of the fall of man in Genesis when sin enters the garden, right? Adam and Eve, because of their decision to try to be gods of their own, the scripture says at that moment when sin enters the world, their eyes are open and they realize that they are naked and so they hide. They cover themselves up one from another. It's a curse that now is being unwound in this community. Outside of the community was where people pose and pretend and put on airs. But in this community... This was going to be marked by something different. It was going to be so weird and strange and different. Everybody in here was going to be sincere and authentic. That's how the curse was reversed. Over dinner, they would come out of hiding. They would get real with one another, talk about their lives and their issues and their struggles and their temptations and their sins. And it was easy because, I mean, they'd already seen, you know, Zacchaeus and, and Peter deny Jesus and, and Matthew was a tax collector. It was easy to just be authentic and sincere. And you know what allowed, when that happened, you know what that allowed to happen? When that kind of authenticity exists in a community, they began to trust one another. And when that trust built, you know what it built? You know what, it, you know what permitted it to build? Devotion. Because they were devoted to one another. They were spending so much time together living in this authentic way, right? Then suddenly they began to trust one another. The curse of sin is that we become devoted to ourselves and trust no one. But in this community, they're devoted to one another and they trust everyone. One speaker I heard this week put it this way, in fellowship, who they were on the outside now matched who they were on the inside. Can you imagine if you really believe that about the person sitting next to you, the trust that it builds? I know that guy, I can trust him. Now the irony for the modern day church, right, is actually how inauthentic we can be with one another. How you doing this morning, brother? Oh, I'm blessed. How you doing? Fantastic. I mean, we engage in fake fellowship. That's why it's so boring. That's why the food stinks. We're polite and superficial. We pretend like everything's fine. There's no problems. We all have it all together. We don't have any doubts. Our marriages are just fine. My kid, superstar. And when we do this, and we all do it, and you know, we've taken on new levels of it with social media, Right? When we do that, when we do fake fellowship, what does it do? Does it engender trust? No. Nope. And so, somebody's with me out there, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, right, when we fake fellowship, right, we have no trust. And, and if there's no trust, 
then there's no authenticity. And if there's no authenticity, then there's no sincerity. And if there's no sincerity, there's no devotion. And if there's no devotion, there's no power. And that's why the church is in the condition the church is in. Open hearts were important, and so were open hands. They shared their stuff, all of it. Luke writes that they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. This was a mark of the church. He goes on to write about, about um, the early church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. It means they were united. There was unity. But to have unity, they had to have, unite around something. You can't, you can't just be unified. They had to unite around something. Well, what was their unity based on? No one claimed any of their own possessions, or no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to. What did they testify to? What was their unity based on? What was it that reversed the curse from selfish to selfless? Simple. It's the same story over and over. They continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their unity, listen now, church, their unity was not around politics. It wasn't around positions. It was around one core truth. Jesus was resurrected and alive. And if he was alive, he was who he said he was. And if he was just that, then he's coming back. Time is short. We don't have to worry about all the stuff that's going on in our lives right now. And so suddenly all of my stuff is not all that important. It's not that big a deal because Jesus is resurrected. What do I care if I have all this stuff? And you don't have some? Let me give you some some of my stuff. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. And from time to time, and here it comes again, same story as before, Luke records this over and over, and he does it for a reason, because it was A, so strange, and B, so common. Those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anybody who had need. And he gives a specific example. It's almost like Luke, Luke is always doing this. Go ask this guy. Go ask this guy. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned. And he bought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Two things mark the early church. Open hearts, open hands. Open hearts, open hands. That's how they reversed this curse of sin. This is what would make them unique. Listen now, this was the mark of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, the Mosaic one, what, God, what, God, what made God's people unique and stand out was, was their adherence to all of these laws. Okay, this is where we get our covenants confused. This is why I looked like I just came out of a cult when I dressed in the 80s. We're all going to dress alike, right? We're all going to do this alike. And then they'll know, right? This new covenant... What was going to make these people stick out was different. Open hearts and open hands. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Now, I want to show you how serious God takes the purity of this embryonic new community. How important to its purpose and uniqueness open hands and open hearts were. It's a story nobody talks about. Luke says, after describing this on two occasions, Luke chapter 2 and chapter 4, he says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Here's, here it is again. It's happening all the time. But with his wife's full knowledge, 
he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Closed hand. He himself did not trust the community. He trusted himself with his own stuff. Closed heart. He pretends to be just like Barnabas and the others who are selling their things and putting it all in for the community, but not Ananias. And so Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to, to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't, wasn't the money at your disposal? I got to tell you, I love the questions in Acts so far. The questions are always so good. You should go through the book of Acts and just find the questions because I think we have to ask them to, ourselves, or to ourselves. Peter's going, listen, I just want to make sure that we're both on the same page, right? This was your land and your money, right? There was no lien on it. There was no mortgage on it. You could have done whatever you wanted to do with that money, right? Ananias, this was totally up to you. And then here comes the piercing question. What made you think of doing such a thing? Why did you do that? Why, why did you keep some of it back and then in front of the community pretend like everybody else that you gave it, you gave it all? He goes, you haven't just lied to human beings, but to God. What made you do that? That's such a good question. What would make me do that? Right? What would make you do that? Why would you do that? Well, that's actually an easy question, right? Like I thought about it. Why would I do that? Well, I don't really fully trust God. I don't really fully trust this community. Pride, control. I mean, do you see what all of those things would do to the uniqueness of this community? If you bring that into this community, what happens to the community? Ananias is bringing all of that sin, all of the curse, and he's bringing it back into the church. Closed heart, closed hand. And so Luke says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. That's not a crocheted on anybody's pillow. <laughs> great fear, nobody, that's nobody's life verse, right? Great fear seized all who ha heard what happened. Of course it did, right? Imagine, oh, <laughs> right? Everybody goes, oh, literally, oh my God, right? This is how serious God is taking this church, this community, this unique reverse un undoing community. About three hours later, his wife came in. Again, Luke, he just wants to make sure that he's, he's showing you that he knows the story. So he's giving you all the details. Three hours later, not knowing what had happened, <laughs> they just dragged the other guy out. Peter says, tell me, uh, tell me, Sapphira, I just want to make sure, I want to make certain about this. Um, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Like, is this the amount you put here? That's what you got for the land, right? Oh, yes, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men you buried, who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. Of course it did. Now, I thought this would be as good a time as any for the ushers to come forward because they're... <laughs> <laughs> 
They're going to be distributing to each of you a tithe pledge card for the coming year. If you wouldn't mind just filling that out and placing it in the offering plate. What's happening here? This is a, this is a scary story, right? See, this story actually has very little to do with giving. What were they trying to do? They were hedging their bets. They were trusting themselves. And at the same time, they were pretending to put it all in, trying to get others to think more highly of them, trying to elevate themselves in the group. They were bringing all of the curses back into the church. It has lots to do with pretense and pretending and authenticity, right? And the impact that that would have on God's church. You can't have open hearts with one another and open hands for one another when fellowship gets ruined by phonies. Do you see that? John Ortberg has a quote. He says, on a human level, we often think that getting real is dangerous and pretending is safe. But with God, getting real is what's safe no matter how much it might hurt and pretending is fatal no matter how good it might make you feel. Fellowship, queen and e. You see why this is not like about potluck dinners? Fellowship is raw and real and honest and hard and messy and it involves risk and you're only going to do it if you feel safe. The word translated sincere, sincere, was actually made up of two words, the word for sunlight and the word for judge. You judge or test something when you see it in the sunlight. You can't hide in the sunlight. It's ironic, in our world, intimacy is often something that happens in the dark, behind closed doors, right? That's, that's, where, that's where we feel most safe, to be most intimate, right? Were we to get naked, we'd prefer to be clothed by the darkness. But you see, in the church, we're to be a people that are reversing that curse. In the dark is where we hide stuff. But one of the apostles who was teaching the early church, he would go on, John, he would go on to write this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what do we have? fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim we have not sinned or given all the money, we make him out to be a liar, and his word isn't in us. See, the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is the story of how important the church is and, and how important it was right at that moment to God, that inaugurating work of ensuring for all time those that who become part of it understand how serious the fellowship is. It's that important. It's fellowship, koinonia, that allows open hearts and open hands. And it wasn't just their money they were, share, they were sharing. And I don't want to run by that, right? We do share our stuff. We, we are to share our stuff. We are to give sacrificially into the local church. I do. If you're not, I hope, well, I hope the story scares the crud. Now, I, 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 I hope you'll realize this is what the church does, Right? The church gives sacrificially into the community and the work of God. But there was something else they shared. The, the Apostle Paul would go on to, to write to a church in this city of Galatia. He says, share each, other's, share each other's troubles and problems, and so obey our Lord's command. Another version says, you'll fulfill the law of Christ, because this covenant has a new law. This is what would make them look weird now, this new law. And then I love this. He goes, if anybody thinks he's too great to stoop to this, he's fooling himself. He's really a nobody. Everybody in this new community is a somebody, unless you think you're a somebody, then it turns out you're a nobody. I mean, can you imagine a community that really functioned like this, that really, really functioned like this? 
I mean, but see, here's the thing. This really happened. And it has happened through the centuries where people live deeply committed to one another, deeply sharing, deeply caring, loving one another, full of joy and compassion and excitement because they knew how short life was, was and, and, and they were able to see life for what it was. And so they started living differently, wildly and freely and full of love. And here's how Luke's story of Ananias and Sapphira ends. He writes, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. They had heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But get this. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The community, people were dropping dead, yet the community was so enticing. The people filled with the Spirit of God were so powerful even though they knew people, everybody that they knew in the community had become so attractive. The faith was so real. The testimony was so powerful. Their love was so strong. Even though people were dying, people wanted in anyway. Can you imagine? Luke said the exact same thing when he concluded uh, Acts chapter 2, the creedal text of the church. He said every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate it together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a church like that? I mean, imagine a church that enjoyed, wouldn't it be nice to be part of a church that enjoyed the favor of all of the people? even those outside of it who didn't believe what they believed, but looked at them and said, those people are weird, but in all the right ways. I think I'd like to be part of that. I had a friend that started coming here from an unchurched background and got very involved in the community. This was years ago. She moved. Um, and uh, one day we were going to, it was around baptism time. We were getting ready to go to the baptism. And there was a sign on the door that said, we're not meeting here today. We're, we're at the lake. And somebody pulled up. Uh, I don't know if it was here. It was at the church or at the baptism. I think it was at the baptism. But somebody yelled out the window to her, hey, what kind of church is this? And she goes, I have no idea. She goes, but these are the nicest people I've ever met. It, wouldn't that be a story for our culture? That's the story of Jesus' church. A living, breathing, functioning community of curse reversers who live with open hands and open hearts because of their sincerity that comes from their authenticity. And all of it is fueled by their devotion to the community. I want you to know there are lots of people who are trying their very best to get you to vote for them or to watch their TV show or to buy their product. And they're doing it by trying to reintroduce to the church the curses of dissension and disunity and distrust. They want to make the church weird again, all right, but in all the wrong ways. Friends, don't bring the curse back in the church. Remember the warning of Ananias and Sapphira. Open hearts open hands, open hearts, open hands. And when we get it right, people will literally be dying to get in here. This place will look and be so different than the, than the world they're used to. They'll be going, I'm not, you know, I don't know what kind of church this is, but I've never met people like this. I'll close with this. Reverse the curse. Don't bring it into the church. Remember what Paul told that church in Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. I can go on and on and on, black or white, Republican or Democrat, gay or straight. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. You are now the blessed people of God, blessed to be a blessing. Church, we need to go do that. Let's stand and close the song.